When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us for another episode. As always, we have an awesome show for you today. I'm really excited about it. I think you're going to love it. Great conversation, good timing with the off-season upon us. Um, A lot of upland seasons are are closing down if they're not closed already. Yesterday, January 31st, was the last day of Wisconsin grouse hunting, so I know uh, know a couple people were out uh, enjoying that, kind of the season finale. I made it out last Saturday for my season finale, had a, had a short hunt, but an awesome one, moved a couple grouse, and I was, I was able to bag one, so I ended the season on a really high note, uh, always, always exciting, and uh, it, was, it was a nice, nice uh, nightcap end of the season as we uh, as we prepare for the off season and of course look forward to next fall it's already 2018 so later this year our our favorite time will come once again and i'm excited about that as i know all of you are as well so not too much for project upland announcements i think i mentioned it last week the new film noise by the fire done in cooperation with pine ridge grouse camp really cool film if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Kind of gives you a sneak peek at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Some of the characters that are that are in the mix up there. I've, I've been able to spend some time there. I love it. It's a it's a really unique place, and I think some of the filming that we did there this fall and, and the films that you will see 
uh, we'll, we'll certainly showcase that. So we've got a lot more stuff to come from Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. I think you'll enjoy that. Check out the latest film, Noise by the Fire, if you get a chance. And we are going to do... We're going to do our first giveaway here on the Project Upland podcast. We'll, we'll keep it pretty simple. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I have to give away. Uh, I haven't uh, confirmed that with AJ, so I'll just go ahead and make a promise that we're going to give you, uh, the winner, a uh, Project Upland hat and a t-shirt. So uh, we'll we'll just run the giveaway, and AJ and I will figure out something behind the scenes to make sure the winner walks away with a nice little uh, Project Upland gift pack. So we'll figure that out. When the time comes, I think we'll run it for maybe a week, maybe two weeks. Yeah, probably two weeks. I'll mention it again on next week's episode. And uh, all we're going to ask you to do is drop us a rating on whatever you're listening to the Project Upland podcast. Obviously, if you know about the contest, you're listening here. So drop us a rating, whether it's Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever you're listening on. I know on Apple iTunes, all you got to do is click the number of stars that you want to uh, give the show to uh, to leave a rating. So do that. Uh, leave us a rating there and then share the episode. So again, w- whatever you're listening to the podcast on, uh, leave a rating and then share the episode. There's usually there's usually a, uh, a share button on each individual episode or the Project Upland podcast in general. Uh, it's pretty easy to find. We'll keep track of all that. Uh, either or make sure, make sure you try to do them both, but we'll keep track and we will draw a winner for the, uh, project Dublin gift pack in a couple of weeks. So that's enough from me. Let's jump into today's episode. Now we kind of teased this a little bit last week as we talked to Jack Steffen, a fellow Upland hunter, friend of mine who had his gun with a gunsmith that he, uh, he's got a, a Fox 16 gauge that he's having reworked to commemorate a dog that he lost last year. Really cool story and uh, obviously means something to Jack, but also means something to the gunsmith that is working on the gun. So we, we talk about that a little bit today. We talk about care and maintenance of your guns for the off season and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, our guest today is Del Whitman. He's a he's a gunsmith in Traverse City, Michigan, near Traverse City, Michigan. Really, really uh, skilled craftsman. Unbelievable. You can follow him on Instagram at Upland underscore gunsmith. That's at Upland underscore gunsmith on Instagram. He posts a lot of pictures of some of the projects that he's working on. And if you're not too familiar with gunsmithing or if you are, uh, it's, it's really, I find it quite amazing what he's able to do with guns and the different projects that he's working on. And he talks a lot about that today and we get into all sorts of other stuff. And, and I really hope to have him on again sometime because he's, he's super knowledgeable and very interesting guy to talk to about shotguns, which we all love. So with that said, we'll move right into today's episode and we will welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Del Whitman. Hey, Dale, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Thank you for having me. This is, uh, this is great. Yeah, we, uh, we certainly, certainly appreciate you joining us for, for this episode of the show. We appreciate it, and uh, I think we'll have some fun. We'll, uh, we'll cover, uh, cover lots of ground and, and talk, about, talk about an interesting topic that uh, is, is certainly uh, of interest to upland hunters and shotgunning enthusiasts uh for sure so it is january 31st we're speaking um so i think that pretty much means 
a ton of uh, a ton of uh, upland seasons are closing down, and and uh, we've got the off season ahead of us to think about think about guns and and uh, what we're gonna do. So uh, let's. Uh, well, I guess before we get into that, let's let's gunsmithing is probably uh, it's probably not the most popular. Uh, it's not one of the most common career paths, Dell. So so I guess why don't we just start there? How did you uh, how did you get into gunsmithing? Um, well, when I was younger, um, you know, especially in my early teens, you know, I was really interested in sporting and outdoor activities. Um, my dad was a high school industrial arts teacher. So I, you know, I pretty much grew up in a wood and a metal shop, you know, being, being around him. And, you know, so I had a lot of exposure to handwork and, and craftsmanship and that sort of thing. And I just, between that and kind of, you know, developing love for guns and shooting and hunting it, you know, at a certain point in high school, I just kind of thought, you know, this, this really seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of the things that I want to do all wrapped into one. And I took a look at a couple of gunsmithing programs. And, and interestingly, the one that I liked the best was in uh, Minnesota where I grew up and uh, it just, it just kind of went from there. I, I enrolled at Pine Technical College and started, um, you know, going to school for gunsmithing and yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started. Um, when I was there, there was a very, uh, talented and gifted instructor who was only there for six years. And, and luckily six of those years, I was there for, for three, three of the six years that he was there. I, I was his student and he was more of uh, a custom on the custom gun making side of it and the custom uh, craft side of it. And, uh, he and I hit it off and I guess he maybe saw a little spark of talent in me and kind of took me under his wing. And, um, yeah, that school had a lot of different aspects of gunsmithing from, you know, just real basic parts changing type stuff to, you know, bolt action, custom rifles and this and that, but he, he pretty much specialized in fine shotguns and, and some, um, you know, fine muzzle loaders. So that's kind of where I ended up gravitating towards. So, Cool. Yeah. So that's how I got my start. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you mentioned it and I, I recall from, uh, from listening to another podcast that you did, I guess for the listeners, um, Dell was on the hunting pot, hunting dog podcast with Ron Bain, really great episode where you talk about some of this stuff and you guys, you guys kind of went deep on, on, uh, sort of your apprenticeship and, and really, really interesting stuff. Cause again, like, like I, like I mentioned, I don't think there's not everybody, you know, you don't all, not everybody knows a gunsmith. So you don't, you don't really know how, how that career path develops and unfolds. But, but I found that conversation to be quite interesting. So you're from Minnesota. You mentioned you love the outdoors. So upland hunting, uh, was that, was that pretty, pretty early introduction for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we did a lot of camping, um, just a lot of outdoor activities as a family, especially, you know, in the summer when I was younger, cause my dad had the summers off, uh, you know, so there was a lot of outdoor stuff when, uh, I suppose I would have been about 14, uh, locally in Renville County, Minnesota, there was a, uh, a group of people went together and put together a big, uh, shotgun and rifle club called the Renville Rangers. And my dad kind of off and on helped manage that. And they had uh, full trap fields, full skeet fields, um, and, and a lot of different rifle f- fields. And I kind of, I started doing a lot of uh, American skeet and trap shooting in my early teens and started doing a little 
casual competing uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, as far as the bird hunting goes, you know, we just, we kind of did a, a lot of different hunting. We deer hunted. Uh, we would take trips up to the area. I would mentioned to you before, uh, you know, that, that Hinkley area, um, sandstone, grindstone kind of up there. And I just always liked, liked the bird hunting more so than some big game hunting. Um, I do deer hunt. I enjoy deer hunting, but, but, uh, bird hunting and specifically grouse and woodcock are kind of my passions. So, um, cool. Yeah. And yeah, I can, I can relate. Oh, sorry about that though. Yeah. I I can kind of relate a little story. One thing that really sparked my, my, uh, my love for upland bird hunting was my, my granddad and my dad. And I, I could probably look back at the pictures and tell you exactly how old I was, but, you know, growing up in Southern Minnesota, when my dad was a kid, um, you know, there were just pheasants everywhere. Farming practices were different and, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And there were just pheasants all over the place. And they took me one time when I was a kid to uh, a preserve with, you know, farm-raised birds that were put out. And, you know, they kind of sat me down and told me, like, look, this isn't an everyday thing, but we just kind of want you to, to understand what it was like in the heyday when there were just birds everywhere. And it was, uh, you know, just kind of get a feel for that. And, and we went out in a couple of fields and the, uh, the dog handler had a German short hair pointer. And, you know, after having like one or two, um, you know, pointed birds rise in front of me, I mean, that was it. That was like, I was hooked. I just, I just knew, I, I knew right then and there, like, I don't know exactly what's going on here but I love every single thing about it, you know? And it was, yeah. and then interestingly, my, my first, uh, my first series bird dogs were German short hairs then too. So that kind of came full circle, but, um, I, I, I didn't do a ton of bird hunting when I was out in, I was out in California for six years working for a gun manufacturer out there. And, yeah. um, that was tough hunting. You know, that was those, those little quail species out there on the central coast are kind of rough. That's, that's kind of a specialist, uh, sport hunting those little devils. So, <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, Jack, Jack talked about that a little bit on, on, uh, the podcast that we did with him. He's done some quail hunting out there, but, uh, cool. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great story. And, you know, I always love hearing how people, uh, people got into upland hunting and, and you're out in Michigan now, um, sort of North, uh, Northwestern lower Michigan and, uh, near Traverse city. So your uh, grouse and woodcock are kind of, uh, that's that's what you guys have there. So that's that's I would imagine that would take up a pretty good chunk of your uh, upland hunting ventures these days. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean that's not only is that what I've got right is what I have right here, but that's really my main my main passion is grouse and woodcock. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of other aspects that I enjoy, but that's really kind of kind of where it's at for me. So. And there's, I mean, there's, you know, I'm in I'm in North Benzie County here, and I mean, there's there's pretty decent hunting you know, literally within minutes of my front door. So that makes it easy. I mean, yep. that, uh, that definitely helps. So now I would imagine you, uh, you have obviously you've got your hands on different guns every single day. Do you, uh, do you remember your first shotgun? Is there a, is there a story to go along with that? I mean, you remember the first thing your dad had you carrying around the, the woods in the field? Well, we, we had some older guns that my dad, um, had had when he was a kid and they were pretty, you know, utilitarian, um, the first, you know, nicer shotgun I ever had, um, 
my uncles and my granddad had uh, had A5s, and my dad, uh, without telling me, we had looked at it a couple times. He went to a, a frontiersman in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I don't oh, know if yeah. you've been been in that sh- that shop at all. And just kind of, I, 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 yeah, I can't remember what he was doing. He was in the cities, and he came back with just a really nice um, vent rib light 12, 28 inch barrels, and it was a, a very early one. It was a, a four serial number flat grip A5, and that was kind of my first first gun that I ever really cherished, you know. And I still. Uh, I, I hunt with, I mean, I hunted the majority of the mid and late season with that gun this year. Um, cool. you know, after you, you've had, had a relationship with a gun that long, it kind of, you kind of know what it's capable of and you have some confidence in it. So, but I, I, and then through the years, like I, I've had numerous different side-by-sides and over and unders and this, that, and the other thing. And, um, you know, I'm kind of one of those guys that I like something that works and that's kind of hassle-free and, uh, um, you know, as long as, as long as I can pick it up and tell that it fits me. And uh, I can I can swing it relatively quickly, and I'm kind of good to go with it. So awesome! So your so your A5 that you've had uh, had for all these years, um, you know, I, I would imagine that you're a guy that takes pretty good pretty darn good care of his guns. Um, you know, have you uh, have you had any issues with it? I mean, you keep it in pretty good shape. Have you had to do anything to it, or is it or is it pretty much kind of like the day you got it? Yeah, pretty. I mean, it's pretty much like the day I got it. Of course. You know, I do have a very kind of kind of litigious regiment of cleaning that I do on my guns. Uh, the, I think the only thing I've really changed on that gun is, is as I've gotten older and I become a more proficient shot, I shoot uh, a little bit longer length of pole than I used to. So I've added a, a little bit of a longer recoil pad and some and some things like that. It's got a it has a actually one of the earliest uh, companies. It was in existence that put in screw in chokes. It has a set of uh, screw in chokes, really early screw in chokes. And actually, I, I don't think I, I don't think I've changed. I've got three different chokes for it. I don't think I've changed the chokes in 20 years in that. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's shooting like light modified and it seems to kill whatever I pointed at. So I just, I just don't mess around with it too much. So. Yeah, we uh we were talking a little bit before, and you and we had kind of uh, we touched on chokes a little bit. What's uh you know I mean it's it's kind of a it's kind of a selling point these days. I mean, just about everything you can buy new off the shelf has interchangeable chokes, and it's got five of them, and they all come in the case, and and that sort of thing. What's 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 sort of your take on on chokes? You know, obviously, you know I think the inter the interchangeable thing's not going away, but um, if you buy a gun with fixed chokes or, you know, what, what, uh, what do you see there? Well, yeah, I think there's a couple of different aspects to that topic. You know, first off, just as far as, you know, the general concept of choke, I think one of the issues that I see a lot is a lot of, uh, a lot of guns, a lot of people shoot, um, tighter chokes than they need to. Um, and they, and they don't realize it. the quality of the shotgun shells we have nowadays are just, exponentially better than anything we had even 20 years ago. You know, the plastic's better, the propellants are better, the, the shots more consistent and, and typically harder. So you don't need as much constriction to get that killing pattern. Um, one thing that I recommend to everybody when they get that gun with all those chokes is to take three or four different kinds of shot shells that you might be using in the field and take it out and actually pattern it at certain distances. And, it can be really striking what you'll find out. Um, 
you know, I've had guys that are shooting some factory ammunition, uh, specifically, I mean, I guess maybe I shouldn't name brand names, but, but cartridges that, that have kind of specialty boutique wads and, and this, that, this and that sort of thing. And they, I mean, they'll have an improved cylinder choke in that gun and it'll be throwing a full pattern at 45 yards. Um, and then I've, I've seen guns that, you know, that have a modified choke that because of some issue with the way the choke forcing cone or the, the barrel is set up, it's throwing a, you know, a ski choke at 30 yards with a modified choke. So it pays to go and check it. And it's not that hard to do. You know, you can buy, go down to a, you know, Home Depot or a home improvement store and buy a roll of Tyvek, you know, a house wrap, or yep. um, you can go to a part, go to a party store and buy the rolls of plastic that you put on picnic tables and, you know, go out on a calm day and set that up and, and, you know, pattern your gun and really figure out, what it's doing at what distances. And then that can make a big difference in the field. Um, you know, if you could say, you know, and I, I speak from the perspective of a grouse hunter a lot. So, you know, our, our, our first shots tend to be typically pretty close and extremely quick. So if you can get away with having a, you know, a pattern that's say 20 or 30% larger inside that first shot zone that you're going to take at that grouse, and still have a decent, you know, killing pattern out to where you think your nominal distance is going to be. That's, that's a huge benefit. Instead of over choking your gun, dropping your pattern size. And, uh, you know, you're just, you're just not helping yourself by, by not experimenting and actually seeing what your gun is doing, you know? So, you know, that's that aspect of just testing it, you know, as, as far as fixed chokes for most people, I don't, I don't find fixed chokes to be a deficit at all with, with most guns. You know, if you, if you kind of think about what you're going to do, you know, most people aren't trying to kill every bird species in the country with one shotgun. You know, I'm, certainly there are people who have just one, one gun, but, but it's not common. So you typically got to, you, you typically have a two or maybe three guns and you can, you can have them fixed choke to, you know, various, constrictions for various applications and 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 then once again too you you check those guns and you'll find hey you know this gun seems to pattern significantly tighter with brand you know brand a and it it you know throws a uniform but slightly larger pattern with brand b so i'm going to use brand b for grouse and woodcock and i'm going to use brand a for late season pheasants you know um so yeah The one, the other thing maintenance wise, I'll say about chokes is, you know, everything's plastic, uh, you know, plastic shot cups these days. And you always want to make sure to get the plastic following all your choke forcing cones. Um, if, if you end up neglecting that, you can build up a ton of plastic falling in there and that will do weird and horrible things to your patterns. So what's the, what's the best way to get that stuff out of there then, Dale? You know, I, I like to use, I mean, first off, I, I, never use those, uh, those, those spiral wrap tornado brushes. Those things, uh, are, can be really, really bad for your bores. Um, I just like to use a good quality, stiff brass brush. Um, and there's a couple different solvents. Uh, Hoppy's elite is a good one. That's a water-based one that that's really uh, aggressive on the, the fouling. Um, I use cleanse oil. I use G96 and just a little, little elbow grease. You, you just got to kind of brush that stuff out of there. And, uh, that's just, just all there is to that. Sure. 
Cool. So uh, yeah, on, on the uh, on the patterning thing, I uh, I will admit, you know, I'm uh, I, I would imagine I'm not alone in this. Where I I have uh, I patterned uh, one of my guns, and I'm pretty uh, I'm, I've been pretty loyal the last couple of years. I only shoot one or two guns, but uh, all that to say, I haven't patterned them all. Um, and so I think you you hit on it. I was going to ask you kind of process, and I think you touched on it a little bit. You know, go down and get some get some of the plastic wrap. I mean, that's easy enough to do. And then, uh, you know, as far as you mentioned shooting different brands of shells, and then as far as distance goes, I mean, do you have a do you have a, a you know a prescription for the distance, or do you just kind of incorporate you know where are you typically well, where are you where are your typical shots? Yeah. So 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 choke is is really actually defined by a percentage of the load of pellets inside a 30 inch circle at 30 yards. And okay. so you're, you know, I don't have the numbers sitting here in front of me, but, but that's the technical definition of choke. So I would say, well, an ounce and an eighth of eight has of eight has these many pellets. I shoot it at a 30 inch circle at 30 yards. And then I go down and I count all the little pellets that are actually in that 30, 30 yard circle. Those are called pellet count analysis. And I, I actually do those quite commonly for guys that are, that are buying, you know, higher end guns that want to know exactly what the choke is doing uh, aside from constriction. But for a practical, from the practical hunting aspect, this is going to sound, will sound a little strange up front, but it's actually super, super simple. You take the rough kill, you know, the rough uh, size of the, the terminal area of the birds you're going to hunt. So a grouse or a pheasant and just go and cut a little, little, uh, you know, template out of a piece of cardboard or paper. So, you know, imagine, let's just say a rough grouse. So something about half the size of a football, but kind of that general size, it's kind of that, you know, that ellipse or that, that 60 degree kind of oval. So what you do is you say, okay, I'm comfortable shooting at, you know, the farthest I would like to shoot is say, or that I would typically shoot would be say 35 yards or 40 yards, which, you know, that, that's actually pretty far for most of us grouse hunters and in most situations, you know, that, that may vary a little bit in late season, but so then basically you just, you just start, start with a, with a fuller choke and, you know, start with your, your most constricted choke, shoot it, and then take that little template and move it around that pattern and say that 30 inch circle and try to find a spot where you don't have at least three pellets that would be in that, in that template, you know, in the yeah. kill zone on that grouse. And then you just keep opening your chokes until you find that, that choke that's too open to put three pellets on the grouse. Now, you know, and then you can vary that. So we know that, you know, pheasants, they've got a bigger, they've got a bigger, you know, terminal area, but it takes more, it takes five or six pellets. So then you say it's got to be five or six pellets. And, and then what you can do too is so, you figured out the maximum dif- distance with a given choke for your terminal distance. Well, then you can come back and pattern that same choke real close and say, okay, with, with this, with this pattern, that's a killing good killing pattern that I'm comfortable with at say 40 yards. What's that actually doing at 15 yards where I'm probably going to get that first shot over a pointing dog and you can see how big it is. And then, and then you can kind of start to do some adjusting. If you say, well, it's early season and there's no way I am ever going to get a shot more than, you know, 25 yards. How far, you know, how far can you go to being no constriction, you know, the most open pattern you can have um, before you start blowing it at those further distances. I I hope that made some kind of sense, but 
you know, you're just, you're kind of figuring out where you want to be at distance and then working back and figuring out what it's going to do for you at, at uh, distances getting closer to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, no, I think that made a lot of sense. It was a, you know, like you said, practical application, uh, you know, apply what, uh, the bird that you're going to hunt and see if, uh, see if that pattern put, put three pellets on it. Like you said, for a grouse, I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Something that, something that we could, we could all go out and do and see. And, and if you have fixed chokes, you know, you, again, then, then it comes into, you know, you've got, uh, experiment with different, different manufacturers, different, different types of shells and see which one does better. And then, you know, when you have those parameters, you can kind of figure out what, uh, what your ideal setup is. So yeah, that's pretty cool. I'd never, Mm-hmm. Never heard it really quite quite laid out like that. I like that. Yeah, and like like I said, I find that you know most guys are just you know really handicapping themselves, especially in the early season with chokes that are just way too tight, um, just just unnecessarily tight. And where you could be throwing a pattern that's say you know twenty twenty five inches in diameter at say fifteen to twenty yards, you're throwing a pattern that's you know. 12 inches in diameter you know it's almost like you're rifle shooting you know those birds up close during the during the early season so excellent all right so so we kind of mentioned uh you know the uh seasons are winding down actually today being january 31st is the last day of grouse hunting in uh, in wisconsin where i've been getting out a little bit in january but i didn't hunt today uh so my season is uh 100 officially over um, so my guns are, they're going to see it. They're going to see a lot less action at least until, uh, this spring, I'm going to try to do a little bit more gunning, uh, this summer and get some practice in. But, um, you know, I try to, uh, I try to pick my guns up around the house and swing them and, and practice that mount year round and, and, uh, try to be a, try to be a good, good grouse hunter and try to improve, but that doesn't always happen. And, and for some people, you know, the guns, uh, they get, they get put away. And, uh, they, they don't really get touched until maybe, maybe a week or two before the season. So for, for those guys and girls, what, uh, what, what are the important things that we should be doing with those guns? I would like to think that all of us know how to clean them, but, uh, you and I both know Dell, that probably doesn't always happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, on a day-to-day basis during the season, you know, you really just want to get the gun dried out, you know, put it in a warm, dry room. You know, even though you may think you're hunting in, in a nice, warm, dry day, you'd, you'd be surprised how much moisture that gun can pick up, um, especially if you're hunting early mornings or, or you know, even, even mid-mornings. There's a lot of dew um, and that sort of thing. You you want to keep the bore clean. Um, you know, there's lubrication points on, on you know, break-action guns over and unders and side-by-sides. You know, you always want to lubricate the hinge pin and the locking bolt recesses and that sort of thing. Um, always be conscious of barrel obstructions or anything that's in the barrel. Uh, you know, I, I would say 99% of, of, you know, barrel bulges or, or, or barrel related issues like that are due to bore obstructions, which, you know, grouse hunting is really prone to, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's two hunting genres that will, that, that just cause you know, guns, shotguns problem more than, than any other. And that would be coffin blind water fowlers, you know, layout blind water fowlers sure. and grouse and woodcock hunters. Um, coffin blind hunters, obviously, you know, and layout blind hunters, they're, they're on the ground and there's, there's dirt debris flying around, but, but grouse and woodcock hunters, you know, I mean, you're in the jungle, you've got, I mean, you would be, 
you'd be shocked if I told you the amount of, the amount of just, you know, pine needles and debris that I've pulled out of guns, you know, it's, yeah. And, you know, a couple, a couple things specifically with, with side-by-sides and over and unders, the, the water table and the recesses where the locking bolts go. And especially like on an over and under where, where the, the bottom of the barrels, you know, telescope down into the action, you really want to make sure there's no debris in there. The other uh, real sneaky spot you always need to be aware of is under your ejectors and extractors. You should always have uh, a toothbrush or something and, and get the debris out of there. Because if you build up stuff under there, then that pushes on the breech face. When you try to, you know, the, the, the front of the ejector blade will push on the breech face and you can't close the gun all the way and it will put undue stress on the action and, and the locking bolt. You know, for your auto loader guys and your pump guys, they're even worse because there's just more orifices, more openings for stuff to collect. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to condone, uh, you know, home gunsmithing type activities, but if you are mechanically inclined, um, and your owner's manual kind of demonstrates how to do it, it, it can pay to learn how to drop your trigger group out. And that will just kind of give you access to a lot of those recesses in the underside of the action. You know, if you're shooting a Benelli or a Beretta, take the barrel and, you know, out and, and, you know, get to where you, you, you're proficient at taking the bolt out and, and get all the garbage out of the back of there. I, I've seen auto, I've seen auto loaders that, you know, literally have so much debris packed in the back of the action behind the bolt that it'll stop cycling. Um, you know, shells will start stove piping because the, the, you know, the, 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 empty cartridge case with the crimp open won't clear the ejection ports, you know? Yeah, so, wow. wow. And, I, and I mean, you take one hot lap through a, you know, some evergreens or some, some cedars that are old and, you know, you kind of fall down maybe once and, and you'd be shocked how much stuff you can, can get into a gun frame without, you know, without perceivably even noticing you've done it. So, and then, and then the other thing is I, I tell people, depending on how much you hunt, um, you know, if you're a real avid hunter, if you're a 25, 30, 40 day a year bird hunter, you really need to have that gun into, you know, a qualified gunsmith like myself for a good strip and clean. Um, and, and you're not only stripping and cleaning and lubricating properly, but, you know, when I do that or other gunsmiths do that, you're assessing, are there any cracks that are starting? Um, is there any undue wear on any parts? Is there anything that looks like it needs to be replaced? If you're, if you're more of a casual kind of weekend warrior, um, you know, maybe every three years is good for that kind of full teardown. But, uh, yeah. So that's, that's, that's kind of the basics. I don't know if there's anything, you know, more specific you want to get, want me to get into with, with maintenance as it pertains to bird hunting, but, uh, no, I think that, I think that that kind of covers it. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on that stuff too much. Um, uh, cause we've got other stuff to talk about, but I think, I think I'm glad you made that last point. Cause I believe that, you know, that kind of gets overlooked the, the, you know, you don't just bring your gun to a gunsmith when something, when you know, something's wrong, right? It's, it's just like your car. You don't, you bring your car in to get an oil change and you bring your, you know, you get things, you get things serviced before there's something wrong to prevent things from going wrong. And, uh, we certainly don't want things going wrong with our shotgun. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you, you kind of touched on some of the things that you do, but, uh, that is, uh, that is, a, a quality use of, uh, off season time is, is, uh, getting, uh, getting our favorite shotguns into, uh, people like you, right, Dell? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it pays dividends. I mean, and just, just like you said, an ounce of prevention. I mean, if I find a little crack and I'm able to, to you know, stabilize that and maybe pin it a little bit, it may never be an issue again in that gun's life as long as you own it. You know, if you wait till the crack is, you know, there's actually a piece of wood falling off or, um, you know, the crack has worked back to a point where it can't be fixed. Well, then, you know, you're looking at possibly a new stock, which is very expensive. So, you know, yeah, an ounce and a, a little bit of prevention goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, we'll, uh, we'll transition a little bit. Um, I had uh, had uh, Jack Steffen on the podcast. Uh, uh, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, and uh, we we uh, prefaced this podcast a little bit. You're working on one of his guns, and uh, I, I guess maybe uh, I'm sure Jack probably calls you uh, ten times a day asking for updates on his gun. But maybe uh, maybe you can maybe you can give us a little update. What what are you working on right now on his gun? No, I'm I'm actually I'm kind of at a point where I'm doing a lot of little things. Um, you know, the, the first big part of it was, um, you know, essentially reshaping the action and straightening out the action, taking care of all the mechanical issues. Uh, once I did that, uh, I was able then to take the existing stock, which was, you know, basically in throwaway condition and effectively make a pattern out of that. And I've had some pictures of that on Instagram where I take. So I've got a set of dimensions from Jack as far as his, you know, his length to pull his drop at. Um, drop it face, heel and, and nose. And I set those dimensions up and I, and I use Bondo and other pieces, you know, you know, auto body filler and other pieces of wood to basically make the stock that I want to make. Finally, you know, and I, I make a pattern and I'm in doing so I'm, I'm able to make a lot of design changes and kind of look at what I'm doing and then reassess a little bit and, really, really fine tune the design. And when I'm doing it that way, it may seem like it's more labor intensive, but it's actually not because I'm doing all that, that real refined design work with, with something where if I don't like a 32nd of an inch that I've taken away here or there, I can just add it back and reshape it. Um, and, and Jack, you know, that was one of the things that Jack had some ideas when we started and it evolved a little bit. And, you know, so so he wanted a gun that had a very streamlined appearance, you know, the stock to be very streamlined and kind of natural looking. He wanted a, um, you know, what I refer to as a round knob Prince of Wales grip, which is a very swept back open Prince of Wales grip. So, you know, I put that on there. Um, most of the other dimensions that I use for a lot of my guns are classic kind of English dimensions. So the, the, uh, and then they're very similar to American dimensions. It's kind of surprising on the higher end how close these are. But, you know, so then I go in and I refine and set the width of the grip and the depth of the grip and the width, you know, the profile of the butt and, and all that gets shaped. So, so anyway, all that pattern work is done. And right now I'm kind of, I would refer to it as like tickling in a lot of the small metal working pieces uh, that, that need to be taken care of before I can get on to, at, you know, working on the real piece of wood. I'm also kind of this week and early next week, I'm going to be putting together some of the, uh, some of the artwork that he wants where, and I mean, it's, it's not anything tremendously complicated, but he wants a little, uh, a shield on the bottom with his dog's name and a couple grouse feathers. And then I'm going to do some kind of basic, uh, um, basic, very tasteful, um, border engraving and, you know, maybe just a little, a little light engraving here and there to kind of, um, just, just, 
pick up the action a little bit and give it a give it a little bit of a custom touch. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at there. Once I once I get all these little tiny kind of nitpicky things sorted out and I get on to um, you know carving on the actual piece of wood, that that clips along pretty quick. That's kind of something where you get started on that and you kind of stick with it until you're you've got it sanded out and you're putting finish on it. So that's kind of where that's at. Um, the action shaping went real well. I was pleased with how that turns out. Um, there's a few things that, that I do on those Sterling worse that kind of are, uh, that make them look a little bit more like, you know, some of the higher grade AH foxes. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's coming right along. Awesome. So, so you, you mentioned it right at the end there. Um, you know, I, we talked about it in, in the last podcast, but we didn't mention it here. Jack, you're working on an age Fox, uh, Sterling worth 16 gauge. Um, and, and it kind of, it, I had a couple questions as you were, as you were going over that. Um, are you, are you doing certain things to the gun, uh, to the wood? Cause the, the wood is all new, obviously. So are there things that you have to consider to sort of, to keep it Fox like, or, you know, does the, does the, the actual metal of the gun, does that dictate kind of what you can do or, or are you kind of free to sort of do whatever you want? Well, you know, you, you know, quote, you know, yeah, I'm free to do whatever I want because I have a rack of files, right? That, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I can make that thing look like, you know, within reason, whatever I want it to. But what I effectively do is I'm not necessarily changing a lot of the overall look of the gun, but I am cleaning it up, you know, on, on those lower grade foxes, the, 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 let's just say, so the continuity from side to side, the detail lines of the way there's, there's kind of a little elliptical football shape uh, plate on each side of the, the action as it comes up from the water table. You know, those, those oftentimes are just, they're, they're not concentric. They're not flat. They're, they're not shaped the same on each side. A lot of times the breech balls aren't shaped the same. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I, what it would be referred to when I do this for other engravers is they'll send me an action and they refer to it as that straightening it out. You know, I'm making everything perpendicular and parallel and flat and the same from one side to the other. Um, so, so that's one aspect of it. I want it to look fox-like. I want it to look like it's an American gun. I just want it to look like a perfect American gun. Um, and then... So on the Sterling worth, like I said, if you, if you look at my Instagram feed, there's some pictures of this, but the higher end foxes had a, a little kind of a, a, a finial like detail that, that wrapped around the mortise where the rib extension goes in. So I, I basically filed that into a Sterling worth. So it will end up having a couple, you know, some of the features that the higher end guns had on that, on that gun. Um, trying to think if there's anything else really i mean i i can go so far as to i have put you know i could file the kind of the little uh finial scallops on the back of the action uh, jack didn't want that done with this one but you know i've done that in the past on those um yeah kind of kind of sky's the limit but i'm not i'm not trying to i'm not trying to change the heritage of the gun i'm just just trying to to make it a lot more symmetrical and a lot a lot higher quality Cool. Yeah. As you, uh, as you were talking about that, I have my, uh, I've got a Fox 16 gauge myself. It's leaning up here next to my microphone. So I, I picked it up and I, I noticed I was looking at those football shaped things that you said that kind of come up 
near the water table. And I noticed that. Yeah, mine are. Uh, I had never noticed it before, so I don't know if I'm happy you said that, but <laughs> they're they're not exactly symmetrical on both sides. No, no, and and you know, especially like you know, I come from the background of, of preparing these actions for engravers. When I worked at at Rigby's, you know, everything was engraved, and with the actions we use, I mean, you you don't send something to a high quality engraver and have one side of the action not be shaped the same to the other, you know. And and then later on when I started, you know, when I started engraving professionally, I, you know, you even appreciate it more where, you know, it's, it's you know, effectively doing that type of action shaping is just, is, is refining that canvas for the engraving. So it's, uh, it's pretty important overall. Yeah. So, um, again, Jack, Jack kind of told the story of, of, uh, of his gun a little bit and he's, he's ultimately, uh, he's commemorating a dog that, uh, that he lost last year and it was a German short hair and, and from talking to you and talking to Jack a little bit, um, you know, I, I got the sense that, that the project was a little bit special for you too. And that, that you've had, you've had short hairs and, uh, you know what it's like to lose a dog. Um, so I guess, it'd be kind of, I think it'd be kind of interesting if you talk a little bit about, you know, when a client entrusts you to do this to a gun, you know, to commemorate a dog, you being able to share some of those feelings, you know, what, what is that kind of like, like for you? I mean, obviously you take pride in your work, Dell. that's, that's obvious and apparent, but what's that like for you? I mean, I mean, honestly, it's, it's actually one of the most enjoyable parts of the trade for me. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy the work. I, I enjoy working on these, you know, wonderful little mechanical creations that, that, you know, you know, good quality firearms are, but when I can do something that's, that's commemorating something or, you know, effectively creating a family heirloom, um, you know, kind of affecting the heritage of, of a family or a person that that's really important. It's very fulfilling. I mean, I, I, I'd be, you know, I can't, I wouldn't be doing it justice to say that it, that it, that it doesn't, um, you know, bring me a great amount of joy to do that. Um, you know, and it, 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 there's all aspects of it. I, you know, I, this, you know, I, I mean, this is the first gun that I've done on a Fox action to commemorate a dog. I've, I've set guns up to have dogs engraved on them many times. Uh, but th- this kind of, this concept was basically, you know, the whole gun is kind of a, a, uh, you know, a commemoration for the dog I've done. I've done guns that were, you know, recreating guns that were given to people and then lost, um, you know, I, I think I told you a little bit, but, you know, sometimes I'll do some of these, what I would refer to as like custom upgrades that, that are kind of a representation of a collectible gun that just because of scarcity, nobody would ever, you know, a person who really wants one will never be able to own just because they, you know, there might only be four of them, um, you know, and they're not, they're not copies. They're not, they're not forgeries per se, but they're, they're a modern representation of those, of those guns. Yeah. There's there's a lot of different facets of of how this you know this this custom you know these custom upgrades can go, but it it, it is it is deeply rewarding to do that stuff. Yeah, so naturally we're we're talking about uh, we're talking a lot about shotguns because this is the Project Upland podcast. But do you you know I know you work on you work on just about everything, but do you do you see uh, you know do shotguns make up the bulk of what you do? Are they, is it 50, 50? I mean, what, what's, what's that breakdown like? Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely work on far more shotguns than I do rifles. Um, you know, I do work on double rifles a bit. Uh, 
of course, they're more shotgun-like than, than your average bolt gun. Um, you know, when I started started in the gun-making business, I, I mean, the first thing I ever did was make barrels for side-by-side rifles, um, which was which was an interesting way to cut your teeth into the trade. I, I really don't ever want to do that again, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, it, it gives you an education pretty quick. Um, but yeah, and I mean, I, I will very occasionally, you know, help somebody customize a rifle or or do, you know, you know, do a little rebarreling project, but that's, that's, I mean, I would say that's less than 5% of, of my overall work. Um, vast majority of what I do is, is, you know, stocking and repair and restoration on fire, you know, on, on vintage guns, vintage shotguns. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of, kind of curious. Cause I mean, oh, that's what, that's what, uh, that's what we see a lot of. And I, I guess I haven't mentioned it yet. I'll probably mention it in the intro, but, uh, people want to sort of follow along and see, um, the projects that you're working on. Uh, you've got an Instagram account. It's at Upland underscore gunsmith at Upland underscore gunsmith. That's right. Isn't it Dale? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Upland, and, uh, Upland underscore gunsmith. Yeah. And, uh, you, you post some pictures there of the projects that you're working on and, and, you know, that's, I think for a lot of people, if, if they have zero exposure to, uh, custom gun making or restocking and restoration, that kind of thing, uh, just seeing some of the pictures and, you know, the ability that you have, uh, and you talked about this, you know, on Ron's podcast where you have, you've gotten to a certain point and you have, and it's by necessity, you know, you work on, you work on guns from, you know, uh, uh, the cheapest shotgun in the world to some of the most expensive shotguns in the world. And you've got to be at a level where if a part is broken or it can't be replaced, you just, you just make it from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got a full size, full size milling machine, full size lathe. Yeah. I've actually got a, a small micro lathe and yeah, I mean, you, you just parts for a lot of these things haven't been manufactured for a hundred years and, 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 right from the get-go most of most of the parts were probably forgings that were hand filed up so you this isn't like you know a modern gun where if you break your hammer and your you know beretta 686 you can just call it beretta and have them send one out and drop it in and with a little bit of fitting you're good to go um yeah you you got to be and and the one thing too not only do you have to be proficient in the mechanics the the physical mechanics of doing it of, of making that part but you have to be proficient in understanding the operating pr- principles and the design principles of the gun. So you kind of know what you're doing with that part once you have made it so you can fit it and install it and make sure that everything's functioning properly. And, you know, there aren't a lot of manuals for that stuff. A lot of it is, you know, there are some, some old archaic books you have to study from. And a lot of it's just, you know, being intuitively mechanical and, uh, you know, being able to figure out, what that part was supposed to do and how it was supposed to interface with all the other parts that are part of that operating system. So it keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. Yeah, I believe that that was, that was going to be my next question. Cause I was just kind of thinking on the fly and that obviously, uh, yeah, you're, you're not getting your hands on, you know, manuals, blueprints for all this stuff, but, but again, you know, you know, you have a lot of experience and at this point you're, you're probably going by feel, um, and just, you know, you've seen a lot now and, and you can kind of, and if you haven't seen it, you can kind of, like you said, if you're mechanically minded, you can figure out sort of what makes the thing tick and, and, uh, how you can, how you can make it tick again for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, so I guess for uh, for anybody that has uh, that has gotten all excited about uh, maybe 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 they have their first uh, vintage double gun or or they're thinking about it and they're they're thinking about you know if if they have to restock it someday. Uh, maybe by necessity or maybe they just want to. Uh, there's kind of a process to that. I want to talk a little bit about it. Um, I guess first we should uh, almost public service announcement. If you're if you're going to get into vintage guns, um, you know you have to you've got to you have to know what you're getting up front, right? And so you've got to the most the, usually the way that people do it is when you buy a gun, you get a three day you know, non-firing inspection period, and you can send it to a qualified gunsmith like Dell, and you'll give it kind of a once-over and let people know what you got up front. I mean, that's obviously number one, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't stress that enough. It's, it's. I mean, probably the worst, the worst part of my job is, you know, somebody comes to me with a gun that they bought, and they're just very excited about it. It's, you know, it, it's something that they think they got a little bit of a deal on. And, you know, they bring it to me and all of a sudden it's got just a bunch of issues and it goes from being a great deal they're excited about to a potential, you know, money pit. And that can be so easily avoided by just having a qualified gunsmith do a very thorough inspection before you pull the trigger on anything. I mean, it's even if it's, you know, something you've wanted your entire life and it's a great deal, if, if you can't get that inspection period or have it inspected, it's better just to walk away from it. It, it truly is because you don't, uh, you, that can, that can go downhill fast, you know, if you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, go ahead. No, no, I was just, just, yeah. And then, and then once, you know, once you, once you have your, your gun that you've decided is is what you want, and then you're you're thinking about restocking it. Do uh, you want to talk about the mechanics of kind of what takes place after that? Or yeah, I, yep, I do. Um, but I want to I want to sort of start with gun fit because I think um, that that sort of influences this decision for I don't know if it's a lot, but some people uh, because of you know especially if you're buying American vintage double guns, um, they were made with different dimensions. Um, th- we'll talk a little bit about it, I think in an upcoming podcast, but, uh, they like my Fox shotgun has a lot of drop. It's got three inches of drop and I'm, I'm not a gun fitting expert. Uh, I plan to see one, but I'm pretty sure three inches of drop is too much for me. So let's, let's just kind of start with gun fit a little bit and, and the importance of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, basically what gun fit is, is with a shotgun, your rear, you know, your shooting eye, typically for a right-handed shooter, that's going to be your, your right eye that, that is in effect the rear sight of the shotgun. And when you're, when you're, you know, moving on a target, moving that gun dynamically, when you raise the gun to your shoulder, uh, effectively where that stock places your eye in relation to the firing plane of the barrels is, uh, is where that gun is going to shoot. And that's, that's what we're talking about when we say gun fit. When, when we say gun fit, we're talking about properly mounted, looking through the barrels. When you pull the trigger, where is that shotgun sending its pattern? And if your gun fits you properly, it will send the pattern pretty much directly where you're looking. You should be, you know, basically looking 
pretty much down the set of, you know, down the barrels, down the rib. You don't necessarily want to be super conscious of the, of the rib or the bead, but the pattern should be shooting where you're looking. You'll hear, you'll hear that term used a lot um, yep. when talking about gun fitting and shooting, but that's what that means. And, and by, by altering the, the drop and the cast, which is the stock left, you know, basically being moved left or right, you, you're effectively, you're effectively moving your eye around just like you would be moving the rear sight of a rifle around. That, that's how you have to think about it. Um, and just like, you know, all humans are not the same, you know, mo most guns are designed for, you know, you know, five foot, uh, 10 inch or, or six foot tall, 180 pound guys, uh, of, of average build. And, you know, if you're one of those guys, good for you because most, most current production guns and, and classically stocked guns, um, with what we refer to as quote unquote, modern dimensions are probably going to fit you pretty darn good. But if you're like me, I mean, I'm a shorter guy, kind of stocky. Um, I've actually got fairly long arms for my build. And, you know, no factory gun I've ever picked up fits me at all. You know, so so uh, pretty much everything I have, I, I've got to alter and, and make sure that it's shooting where I'm looking. Same, same token, if you're a guy that's 6'2 and weighs 130 pounds or 100, you know, 40 pounds, you're not going to shoot a gun that Dell shoots very good, you know. Yeah. Yep. So... So yeah, and, and and in figuring out gun fit, we use we use a lot of different tools. Um, you know, you can shoot a gun that you shoot well uh, at a patterning plate or at targets, and you can kind of make some decisions there. Um, there's also tri guns, which are which are shotguns that have articulated stocks, so the buttstock of the gun can be moved left, right, up, down uh, to to basically kind of try to find that that perfect dimension where your eye is properly placed so the gun shooting where you look uh, a lot of times those guns too will have uh, an adjustable length of pull so you can kind of make sure that the length of pull is proper um, so that's that's kind of gun fitting 101 or, or gun fit 101 and it's it's really it's really really important you know uh, a properly fitted gun is kind of the first step to good shooting um it, it always shocks me when I look at some of the chat rooms and some of the, uh, you know, the threads on Facebook and some of the other places where guys will just go on endlessly about barrel length or shot size or gun weight or, you know, any of these things. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you got to understand all that stuff is irrelevant. If when you mount the gun and shoot your pattern's two feet to the right, every time, you know what I mean? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, 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 and, and I, and I don't know why, you know, in, in, in American culture, just, just going back gun fit was never really thought of as something that was important. And it's one of the things that has perplexed me. Um, you know, and I, I guess maybe I'm learning more and more as I read, you know, just kind of research some of the older, older, uh, you know, sporting literature and stuff, but you know, in, in continental Europe and Britain, that's, that's almost one of the first, you know, first things you do when you're a kid before you, you know, when you're, when you're bought your first shotgun, even if it's in an in inexpensive shotgun, they will, you know, check you out for gun fit. Um, I've got European clients that literally have their stock dimensions on a business card and they will, they'll send me a gun to inspect or a gun to alter. And it just comes with that business card or that fitting sheet. And, you know, when I get that gun for them, that's the primary concern. Is, is this gun going to fit me? If it doesn't fit me, 
what do we got to do to alter it to fit me? And what's that going to cost? And how's that going to fit into the whole, you know, the whole process of owning this gun and deciding whether or not it's going to, you know, be a, be an effective tool for me. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so funny. That's, I mean, I just, I can't help but laugh. You know, we, I've, I've seen all the same conversations. I've been a part of them talking about the, you know, the last two inches on the barrel, whether it's 26 or 28 inches and, and the, the, the few ounces that, that make it, you know, six and a half pounds or six pounds even. But, oh yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Here, here you might have a gun that's got, you know, three inches of drop and, and like, uh, in Ron Bain's can't, uh, you know, in his position, he's a lefty and, you know, he could very well be shooting guns that have, you know, that are slightly cast for a right-handed shooter. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, there, there's a good chance that Ron has never picked up a gun that fit him properly. And I mean that, and that's a shining example of that, that kind of, uh, that, that American philosophy, you know, he didn't even consider that for yep. the majority of his adult shooting life, you know? And I mean that, and I'm not picking on Ron. I mean, he's, no, he's, he's no. a very common example of that, of, you know, and then you'll, you'll, you'll hit guys that have never been checked for eye dominancy, you know, and they're, they've been shooting, they've been shooting right-handed, uh, you know, for their entire life. And they, and they might be right-hand dominant, but, but they're left eye dominant. So it's like they, you you know, they're, they're, the eye that they're lining up on the barrel is not the one that's focusing on the target and they'll have all sorts of, you know, issues. So it's, 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 I think the message is getting out there a little bit with, you know, with the shooting public, especially in the bird hunting communities that this is, you know, this is very, gun fit is very important and it's not something you can really overlook, you know, or you should, I should say you shouldn't overlook. Yep. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll kind of, uh, we'll walk through this, this process a little bit sort of briefly and, and, uh, we'll probably wrap it up, you know, at that point, I'm sure we could, uh, sure we could have you on again sometime and talk about all this other stuff, but let's, we'll you, we'll use me for an example. Um, so I've got a, you know, I've got a Fox Sterling worth 16 gauge. And like I said, it's the, the length of pulls pretty darn short. Um, and I think it's like my, maybe 13 and a half inches. I've got a lengthening pad on it. It's got about three inches of drop, but if I bring that gun into your shop, um, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to restock it or, or, or at least try to make it fit me better. What, uh, what are we going to do? Well, you know, so, so the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, get you in your shooting clothes with your shooting eyewear on. Um, so we're kind of replicating either a target shooting or a field hunting scenario, what you would be wearing on a everyday trip to the field. Uh, the very first thing I'm going to do is is assess your length of pull. So I, I've got it set up. It's very rudimentary. I've got it set up in my shop. So at the proper height, I've got a. Uh, it's actually the end of a, a paper tube that's got a white cover on it. It just makes a nice little focal point. It's probably about six and a half feet off the ground, seven feet off the ground, which which is kind of where you want it to be. Um, so you know when you point on that, your muzzles are slightly up. You're not pointing way up in the air, but you're not holding the gun, uh, you know, parallel to the ground. And I'm just going to have you mount the gun a few times, and I'm going to have you point at that, and I'm going to assess your length of pull. And I want to see that your um, your cheek is hitting the, the stock in the right place. So I want to see your eye be and, – and, and this varies a lot with stock design, so I'm just going to kind of throw some numbers out here. But for everybody who's listening, realize those, those numbers can be kind of dynamic depending on, you know, what grip style you want and – you know, some, some factors like that. So, 
I'm going to want to see your eye be about, oh, three or four, maybe three and a half to say four and a quarter inches back from the comb nose. I want to check the comb nose to make that there's make sure there's not an anomaly there because there's an average distance from the breech face to the comb nose. So, so anyway, that said, so I'm going to assess, assess your length of pull, make sure that your, your arm is kind of extended to a comfortable, uh, in a comfortable way. Um, so you're not, it's not kinked, but you're not really having to strain to reach for the trigger. So once we've sorted that out, um, you know, and that may entail cutting some wood off. It may entail me, me putting some, uh, you know, taping some extensions on just so you can, you can kind of get that feel. Um, you know, what I'm going to do then is, is there's an exercise where I will stand up on a, on a, a, a box and, you know, have you show me that the gun is empty and then have you effectively do that same pointing method, but do it at my directly at my right eye. And once again, for everybody, this is not something we want to do with your pals and safety yep. is of, of a prime concern here. So, you know, you don't have any shells in your pocket. Every time you do that, you, you physically open the gun, show me the breaches, look down the barrels, make sure it's not loaded. Um, so safety first with, with the, with this concept here, right? Yep. That said, so, so you're going to mount the gun, like you're, you're in a shooting scenario, just, just a very good, uh, you know, casual gun mount. And I'm going to look down the barrels and see where your eye is in relation to the rib plane. And I can tell a lot after all these years, just from doing that, like I can see is, is your eye floating over the rib? Is your iris buried behind the top lever? Is it way over to the right, way over to the left? Um, so, so that's kind of how the very initial step and just kind of seeing where you're at from there. Um, we can kind of make some judgments about what we can and can't do. Um, after that, to confirm that information, I've got a patterning plate in, in, in my, uh, you know, in the backfield of my facility here. And that's a, that's a steel plate that's up off the ground and I can paint targets on that. And you stand at approximately 16 yards back from the target. Once again, the, the, uh, the, the portion, the target that you're actually shooting at on the patterning plate tends to be, you know, seven or eight feet off the ground. And you're going to shoot at that um, with your natural gun mount. You're not you're not aiming the gun like a rifle. You're not trying to compensate. You're just having good good hard focus on the target. You rise your gun. You know, mount your gun properly and fire. And um, you know, we're going to have you do a series of two or three shots like that. And and right there, it's it's very stark when you do that. You can you can see that you know all three of those shots were. 18 inches, you know, possibly like as an example, like 18 inches left. And, you know, because you probably don't, you probably don't have enough cast on that gun. And then you're probably going to be shooting quite low because there's so much drop. Um, now from there, you, we can move, we can move on to a tri gun and start moving some things around. Um, if it's a custom stocking situation where you, where you've decided you want to, you want to custom stock it, that's where I can start doing some of that pattern work with the auto body filler and the spacers and whatnot and you can actually shoot those dimensions. Um, you know, I'm a gun fitter and a gun and a stock maker. So I can, yep. I, I kind of can interface those two things. So as an example, you know, we could come to a set of dimensions that, that I thought was, you know, appropriate for you that looked good. I would build the stock up with the pattern, with the Bondo. And then if you wanted to, you could come here and shoot that stock. Um, it's going to be heavier, of course, than, than the uh, final stock would be, 
but it allows us to test, you know, you know, do the acid test with those barrels on a patterning plate, even shoot some targets if, you know, and then at that point, if you're, if you feel you want to, the grip isn't just perfect and you want to change a little bit on the grip, I can add or remove material there. If we find we need to slightly change the comb profile or raise it or lower it, we can do that. Um, and, and basically just come to a set of dimensions that are acceptable for you, that you like, that you shoot well. And, um, from there, uh, yeah. So, so once, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but once you, once you get your gun fit figured out and it's very simple, I mean, there's a little, it's like a little, uh, we call it a fitting sheet and it's just a little, a little grid of boxes that tells you, you know, what's the drop at the three different crucial points on the comb of the stock. What's the cast at those three different points. Um, there's information there if you need a Monte Carlo, uh, there's that information there about the distance from the breech face to the comb nose. Um, it's, it's basically just like a, you know, the dimensions a tailor would get you if you're custom measured for sure. a suit. Um, you know, then, then from there we, we decide, okay, can, can we alter this gun with a hot oil stock bend or some, some uh, comb reshaping? Um, is that, you know, decide if that's something the customer is interested in or, you know, or, you can go from there and decide to, uh, to have a custom stock made. And then, you know, at that point you, we would be looking at picking out a piece of wood and, uh, you know, talking about any alter, you know, any design changes you want made as far as, you know, the custom features, like, do you want pointed around face plate face plates? Do you want uh, a Prince of Wales grip with a flat, uh, with a flat or a grip cap or a round knob? Um, you know, what type of, recoil pad do you want or do you want a leather cover recoil pad or horn or skeleton butt plate or you know it once the mechanics of, of deciding you know figuring out your gun fit it's all just there's a lot of aesthetics that need to be decided on after that yeah so yeah yeah okay cool yeah so so it's so yeah it's it's really it's really two parts in that obviously you know gun fit being first and foremost number one you know figuring out what works for the individual shooter and then then once you have like you said once you have those dimensions those dimensions are somewhat universal i would i would imagine where you can kind of then you can start to look at guns you know if like i've got one picked out but somebody else may they may be considering a few guns so then you can sort of look at look at different guns and say well this one we could probably adjust to make fit this one would have to be a custom restock and so so you have those dimensions you can kind of use that to sort of base your your go forward plan off of Absolutely. Yep. That's, I mean, you just you explained it exactly there. And, you know, for a lot of my longtime returning clients, that's, that's part of that inspection that I do. You know, they, they'll, they'll send that gun to me and they say, okay, you know, I mean, what's it going to take to get this gun to fit me? And that may be as simple as a recoil pad, or it may need a two plane stock adjustment and a recoil pad, which, you know, there, there you're talking about an entirely different scenario and an entirely different price tag or, or, it may need a new stock once again, an entirely different process with an entirely different price tag. So, and and once again, it's good to figure, it's good to figure all those, uh, all those things out on the front side. I, I I refer to, I refer to that situation as the feasibility study. You know, you gotta, you gotta figure (laughs) out if, if, if we can get from, from here to there with, with what you're wanting to spend and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Cool. 
All right, Dell. Well, hey, that we uh, we covered a ton. Um, that was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm sure this won't be the last time that you and I talk, and uh, and uh, we'll 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 have you on the podcast again sometime and talk about uh, you know, everything we didn't cover. But uh, again, really appreciate you taking the time this evening. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'd uh, we'd love to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a great time, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. So. All right. Thanks, Dell. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. Yep. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye-bye. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the show today. Really appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed it. Reminder for the Project Upland giveaway, uh, Project Upland gift pack on its way to the winner of our first podcast giveaway. All you got to do to enter is leave us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or Google, wherever you're listening, that'll be one entry. And then if you can share the episode on Facebook, I didn't specify that in the intro, share the episode if you can, that'll be two entries. Uh, We'll probably cap that, but leave us a rating and share the episode on Facebook. We'll probably post it on Facebook. If you see that, share it. We can keep track of all that stuff and we will give the Project Upland gift pack to the winner in a couple of weeks. I'll remind everybody again next week, And then we'll give it away probably the following week. I'll announce it. So a couple of weeks, leave us a rating, share the episodes, and get in the habit of that because we've got more stuff coming your way. Project Upland Podcast brought to you in part by Prime Grouse Camp. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again next week. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.